I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I I really don't I really don't do that anymore. There was one time where we did a a fun size episode while we were still recording at Sam's house, and it was like I I it was just one toke over the line, and I was barely able to talk, and I was like after that it's there's no, there's no need to be lit while podcasting. <laughs> it's so hard. It makes it so much harder. Hey, there are some people who make millions of dollars every year who live in that state. I, and, I guess. Uh, they, they usually live till they're 27 years old, though. That's true. I mean, occasionally, it, I think it's kind of weird. I think that it's like the job expectancy for some kind of combat android where you are either going to die at 27 or you're going to live to be 9,000. <laughs> <laughs> Where you look at somebody, you know, like the Rolling Stones, I think at this point have just kind of ossified into what I mean, they're just like made out of solid wood at this point and leather. And they're going to live for they're going to outlive all of us. And they're probably going to die in the 31st century after the last of the oxygen burns off of the Earth's atmosphere. (laughs) (laughs) But it's crazy. I don't understand. They shouldn't be alive knowing what we know about their chemical intake. (laughs) <laughs> was it there was an episode of something I think it was the Simpsons where it turns out Mr. Burns has all of the diseases and it keeps him in perfect perfect equilibrium. Oh and my so god. If he was to be cured of some of his diseases uh then the other ones would would get him. But uh maybe they just found they found the right the right cocktail. You know, dr- drugs in those exact quantities. We should be studying them and so we can we can reproduce this effect. What's kind of amazing about that show is that it uses a similar um, sliding timeline that you get from, like, comic books is the closest thing, where, like, Captain America was a character who has one hard piece of his timeline, which is he fought in World War II. And the part that slides around is when was he revived from ice? And the first time that happened in the comic books was in the early 1960s, I think it was like 1964. So at that point, he had been frozen for 20 years and he was waking up in the early 1960s. And yeah, there's going to be a bit of a culture shock to that. Uh, Certainly, there's probably some changes, but we're now in sort of the world where that time slide has gone to the point where in the movies, he's been asleep for like 80 years. And it's an insane, it's like a world of the future that he's waking up in, where it's not just, why do all the men have long hair and mustaches, which is probably what he had when the comics originally happened, where if he hadn't been frozen, he'd be in his 40s. And it's it's weird when that sort of stuff happens. And I just go, okay, Mr. Burns in The Simpsons exists on a similar sort of tray, where At some point, I know that there are older episodes that sort of portray him as somebody who was alive at the turn of the century, and he's wearing one of those, he has like those little schoolboy curls, and he has like that sailor hat outfit (laughs) that children in paintings have, but I'm not sure ever had in real life, like creepy doll clothes uh, that they would use to put on children, at least 
you know, I don't know if any real. It's it's all it's all historically apocryphal is all, all I can tell because this is entirely based on my my pop culture intake. But that was the kind of that was the generation he grew up in. So you get the impression that his parents were like, you know, turn of the century robber barons or something. But now that, you know, like nearly 35 years have gone by since that TV show started. What generation is Mr. Burns of? Because they just recently apparently did an episode where Homer was a teenager in the 90s. <laughs> what? <laughs> so Homer is now younger than we are. And that to me is something that I don't know if my ego can take. Because when I remember flashback episodes from 20-something years ago where Homer and Marge are dating in high school and they go to see Empire Strikes Back in the movie theater. And that's when Homer stumbles out and spoils everybody who's still waiting in line. (laughs) And Bart would essentially be our age. And now, since Bart is about 10 years old, that means Bart was born in the 2010s. I I just don't like... Actually, I don't like to think about it. (laughs) No. There's something about it that... That that would that would actually more than anything would wave me off from wanting to do that experiment that I think millions of people probably say to themselves yet never do. I mean, di- I'm talking about dieting, of course. No, I'm talking <laughs> I'm talking about the like the oh I love the Simpsons in seasons you know two through ten. Like maybe I'll go back and and then no one ever goes back and watches the any contemporary episode. And now no. knowing that I'll be like, is it all just gonna be like? terrible pop culture of the moment send-ups like what happened when Futurama had its its like last two seasons and it just got terrible I, I is it gonna be like that where it's almost as bad as a uh you know scary movie date movie that sort of thing where it's just references to shit I think a lot of it is yeah and ah. I think that it's it's bad but here's the sad part it's still better than probably half of the sitcoms on television still. It's just, we have a standard for it that's based on that two through 10 seasons. There was a period of time that is longer than the run of most shows entire length that this show was awesome. And most shows never have a golden period that lasts almost a decade. But The Simpsons had that. They were amazing for a while. It was kind of, It started at the point where the Simpsons were no longer controversial to the point that their t-shirts were being banned in school. So it sort of started under the radar and then went on for about seven or eight years. And during that time, they were amazing. And I don't want to blame it on a certain thing, but it tends to coincide when, when Phil Hartman died that the show didn't, it started to get worse. And I think that you know, for a show that has so many characters, it feels like it's run out of things to do with a cast of thousands. And now it just has a kind of stunt, stunt casting of celebrities showing up um, that if you were supposed to just write down all of the things that Homer Simpson has done and just the jobs that he's had over the course of that series, it would be as insane as summing up the things that have happened to Batman. Yeah. Like Homer has gone into outer space He's been elected to multiple public offices. He has um, become a, a stand-up comedian, a cartoon voice actor. He's um, become rich multiple times. I, you know, there's all of these things that he's happened to happen to him that are just insane. 
Um, he worked for a, a Bond villain briefly. <laughs> he. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I mean, and, there's and all of. Everything you're bringing up is within that brief golden era that you're that we we've all seen. So think of what he must have done now for them to manage to continue continue to come up with plots. Like I think, no. I think about th- there was a early South Park episode called Simpsons already did it, which is, the joke was that every plot convention that they could that they tried to come up with uh, had already been done on an episode of The Simpsons. Well, that episode was from 2002. Now, both oh, The Simpsons and South Park uh, have have had some time to spin their wheels since then, and it's, hey. it's at some point with the same characters in the same basic situation. You you know, there's new things to take parody shots at, but w- what what else do you do with that story uh, before it just gets completely ridiculous? But also, you have, and we've talked about this before in the past on fun size episodes. But there's also the world has changed in these dramatic ways that makes parts of The Simpsons anachronistic. Homer Simpson never went to college. He um, has a he owns a house uh, with at least four bedrooms because um, Maggie has her own bedroom. Um, without a college education, union job, single income. And that seems like science fiction now. Then you have characters like Krusty the Clown. He represents a kind of television that hasn't been around in a popular way in such a long time. Mm -hmm. That is the sort of stuff that died out as we were getting into our teen years. I remember that the local television had Ranger Charlie and Roscoe show, which was the last, you know, live show where somebody interacted with a puppet and there was like a peanut gallery and they showed cartoons I don't know of anything like that anymore. I mean, that is largely something that existed to our parents. That was a boomer thing and kind of came out after World War II. You had locally here, there was J.P. Patches. In the Midwest, you have Bozo the Clown. But the idea of a live kids show host, let alone one who is popular enough that he is the spokesman of a national fast food restaurant is crazy. And I bet you a lot of, 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 say, like a Zoomer were to watch that, they would have no idea what Krusty is referencing, and they would probably just think that these sorts of things are references to Krusty the Clown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there there was a, uh, uh, the, for, for a brief period of time, there was the, the Gen X um, grunge equivalent of that kind of a show on our old network, Scan TV, Mike. Do you, have you heard of Jerk Beast? Jerk Beast? Yes. Uh, knowing it's on public access, I'm a little scared to ask you what that is. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with masturbation. Um, it is. It was. It was essentially the local equivalent of a kind of uh, jackass, I guess. And it aired on Scan TV, which was the now extinct public access station that Mike and I started our first show on with Sam Mulvey. Um, apparently, it was like a skateboarder prank show where jerk beast was a oh. was a guy in a huge like cr- kind of costume and it was a it was a somewhat of a sketch comedy show but i think it was mostly about running and scaring people i think <laughs> and that's that's all i know about it I, i've seen a few clips but it's definitely one of those it's now extinct it it might exist in some youtube clips and someone made like an 80 minute documentary a couple years ago called jerk beast to try to tell How- 
to try to tell the story. How is there enough footage of Jerk Beast that you can make a documentary, like anthology? Of I, this? Apparently, like a they, apparently, they probably saved the tapes. They, you know, they had to bust out the Super VHS player or something, the Betamax. But I, I also have to wonder, though, Jerk Beast, given the sort of person who would produce a show called Jerk Beast, that is, I guess he's a jerk beast who goes around and, and bothers people in a costume. He has to have the attention. The sort of person who would make Jerk Beast, I don't know, has the attention span to make a lot of Jerk Beast. <laughs> that's that's what I'm curious about because it seems like this would be something he does for about three months and gets bored with because one, that seems like a pretty shallow topic to try to stretch out to something that could be summarized in an 80 minute documentary, but I mean, let alone that's 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 a 20 minute documentary tops, even with interviews. Um, <laughs> but man, I can't believe we had an entire fun size episode that we did last month with Mr. Paul Hicks talking about conspiracy theorists, and we didn't really talk about Scan that much because oh yeah, not only <laughs> was Scan essentially a haven for conspiracy theorists. So the Seattle Community Access Network, uh, we uh, were three of the founding producers, uh, Casey, Sam, and myself. Of the Ask an Atheist radio show, which started out as Ask an Atheist, the public access TV show. And we found out very quickly we were the only non-conspiracy people at that entire network, <laughs> aside from maybe the staff. And um, I know that they had specific rules at there that you basically could be the producer on one television show so that you couldn't have 10 shows all to yourself. But the problem was they didn't police that well, but one, because I don't think they had a lot of people that were clamoring to be on scan. And two, the conspiracy people got around this by basically being a huge clique of people who would all appear on each other's shows. But like an insurance scam or something, they would put the name down for a different person on each one of these shows, even though there'd be a lot of crossover. And it wasn't just the shows that they would specifically be conspiracy minded. It was also the other shows. Like we found out pretty quickly that the lady who did a show where she just did local blues music was also ranting about like fluoride mind control. And it was just <laughs> you find out really quickly you're all alone. And we went to, I know you went to one with Sam and I went to one with Sam, these producer meetings, which are supposed to be an opportunity to talk to the staff and the people who run the station. And you sit around a conference table and there's producers of other shows there. And we quickly find out that these are some of the least productive meetings you can ever go to <laughs> because nobody has constructive criticism. People just have, you know, fingers to point at various government agencies about why the sound quality on their show sucks or why <laughs> they had a problem getting something to start recording or why a microphone wasn't working. And it's all because the Illuminati and the Obama administration <laughs> were, you know, afraid of the truth that they were spewing into the world and tried to stop them. And it was not helpful. And you could see it on the face of the people, the poor people working at Scan, that they're like, this is not helpful. I We want to help you make your shows better. And I can't do anything about the Bilderberg group. <laughs> but... <laughs> If you can tell me a better idea of what was wrong with the microphone, maybe I can work backwards from there. And it was, I remember we went to one of those meetings and one guy got up. He was just, I remember Sam referred to them as Hagrid's grandparents because these people were, these people were huge. And I'm talking like, and it is that sort of Hagrid build where you're like, I believe you actually are half giant. You're like <laughs> about seven feet tall and sort of built like the Undertaker. And um, 
he start, he got up and he goes, well, as you know, 9-11 was an inside job. And he launches in. And I'm like, I think I exchanged a look with the head of Scan. And I'm just like, I don't know what's <laughs> happening. She's like, she like shrugged at me. Um, but it was weird because <laughs> we were the subject of a conspiracy uh, click exclusion. Not that we wanted to hang out with these people, but um, being the host of like an atheist radio show or, or television show at that point. They were convinced we had been sent there by the Obama administration to spy on them. And whenever we would enter a room that they were talking amongst themselves, they would go quiet right away. And it was the weirdest, but also weirdly ego affirming feeling in the world because you feel suddenly weirdly powerful. Like you're suddenly an agent who's, it's like, come on guys, this is really stupid. Also, um, your shows are bad. And I don't mean not interesting because there's nothing more interesting than one of them, and this is for real, who claimed that the um, Obama administration was using an earthquake machine and they wanted to make a huge chunk of the country fall into the ocean. And what's always great about these kind of conspiracies is that as a comic book fan, always in the back of my head is running this little tally sheet of like, okay, what comic book supervillain would be most appropriate for that kind of plot? And with that one, I'm like, oh, the mole man, that's what it is from the Fantastic Four. And I'm like, it's, it's, it's crazy because there was always something like that. Oh, okay. They've got some sort of satellite machine underneath a thing in you know yeah underneath in alaska something about the the denver airport i mean there's always something like that i'm like okay that seems like something the kingpin would do or oh that's dr doom and it's just it was it's always something like that and it was just so bizarre but they would just go dead quiet and again the real crime of their shows again wasn't that the subject matter couldn't be interesting that the idea that the president could be a literal supervillain with a doomsday machine rather than the banal kind of supervillainry that we get with elected officials, where it's just kind of stupidity, bigotry, and greed. Uh, but I mean, just an outright, I'm going to make part of the country fall into the ocean, <laughs> kind of stuff. How could you make that boring? They found a way. They found a way because their shows were monotone. I don't know what was going on with their sound quality, but it sounded like shit. And because they were so unpleasant and so quickly to point fingers that you're in on it and you're trying to destroy me, no one who worked at the station wanted to help them. So they w their shows wouldn't get better. Their sound quality wouldn't get better. But the difference between them and us is we took notes on what we thought were wrong with these machines, given it was a hodgepodge of equipment, some of it from the 1980s up until the 2000s, all kind of, you know, spit shined and thrown together with bailing wire. And Sam Mulvey being the sort of technical genius who can turn garbage into recording equipment could figure it out in ways that most of these other people couldn't and would give detailed notes on what he thought was wrong with things. And we were actually helpful to the people who ran the station. And they were like, oh, okay. We, you know, it was weird watching them in their face going, oh, we don't have to be scared of you. Um, I don't know how to react to that. I guess you're our friends. <laughs> and we were allowed to go into parts of the station. The other people weren't. And it was kind of the degree that there were certain rooms that you got the impression were just safe spaces that they could hide in from these people. Uh, and, um, and the, really the irony of it is that, uh, it, you know, a year after less than a year after we had started, um, there was a, you know, there was a funding crunch from the city and, uh, they decided the city decided to defund scan and they ended up closing it. 
And uh, there was a period of which they, you know, the city council was taking hearings and trying to gauge how useful to the community scan actually was. And in some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, I'm sure someone from the city council was like, let me look at what's on scan now. And they saw the conspiracy people and they're like, oh, well, this is surely not what our money should be going to. So, of course, they created, they themselves in their utter banality probably created the seeds of their own destruction. (laughs) But again, you have the sort of circularity of... of, um of conspiracy thought because you have these people who are convinced that the powers and be are out to get them for completely different reasons than the real reason they flushed them down, which is that looks like a waste of money. Yeah. And what really bugged me is that it, it paying for them kind of was a waste of money, but it doesn't have to be a waste of money. The idea of opening a, a venue for community media is always a good idea. And given the fact that there's just so few voices out there, especially, you know, post 1990s and the telecommunications act, it's just harder and harder to have voices out there. Fewer, fewer owners for more and more stations. And there's this one place where, you know, local, and sometimes it's like a class, you know, that you can have immigrant groups or uh, church groups or anybody who can actually get their voice out in, in local media. That's all good. Unfortunately, primarily the people who take advantage of this service are the craziest people in the world. And the best thing you can say is at least it's keeping them off the streets. And <laughs> well, I bet some of them came out to those public, uh, the public hearings on having scan open. I bet there's some, the city council probably had some interesting, uh, speakers to, to convince them that it was worth keeping up. Well, we were, we were there on the night that it happened. I'll make this short. Essentially, it wasn't just scan. It was that that was on the chopping block because it was a big city, uh, you know, city budget shortfall. Everyone who had any pet community project, including like, the the whatever neighborhood uh you know community center needs funding and stuff so you know we were we were a represent you know we were a loss along with maybe 10 other people maybe more were in a standing room only city council meeting that went late until like 11 p.m and we were just one of dozens and dozens of different organizations who are getting their funding cut entirely so like we we were a blip of a blip to be honest. Yeah. And the sad yeah. thing is that it doesn't really, you don't really save much by cutting most of these things because it's a tiny thing. Hashtag defund the police. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's the thing that was, that was hard about it is that every one of those people has oftentimes a sadder story than we do. And that's hard to sort of compete with. And you also, you don't want to cut somebody else's, you know, essential program in the name of this, even though I think this is important. And it feels like you're in this weird, ugly, you know, sob story competition. And meanwhile, like you mentioned before, those people did show up to the hearing and they were not making it fucking easy. They were doing everything in their power, including the same sort of accusations of affiliations with various clandestine groups, you know, basically accusing them of being part of Hydra. Uh, (laughs) And it's like, you guys are not helping. I would give any amount of money for you just to shut up. And I think I I coined the phrase arch allies at that point where I'm like, just stop, just stop. If you wanted to kill this station, you couldn't be doing a better job. And it was just, it was a nightmare. I mean, um, but anyways, 
considering that we had just come on that station six months before and now it was being defunded and you're at a station that is about 75% conspiracy theorists who already thought we were there to spy on them. They were clearly utterly convinced that we had shut down that station, <laughs> which on one level is, is hilarious. I've never thought, and, and no one's ever thought that I'm incredibly powerful for one, but secondly, um, I'm not there. You watch their shows and there's really nothing that anyone powerful would have to be afraid of them because they go out of their way to be as utterly ridiculous as possible. I mean, it's everything but that, you know, Charlie Kelly, you know, Pepe Sylvia meme. Um, with, right. <laughs> it's, it, it's all, it's, it's really bad. There was one of those shows where the guy always wore a crazy uncle Sam hat and his, his, uh, co-host always had this like, pot leaf bandana covering his mouth because <laughs> um, I guess he had a secret identity but he would go out and take smoke breaks and we would always go go out and take a picture of him with your phone <laughs> and see what it does um, uh. because they were oh man but yeah it was but that guy would constantly and, and exclusively for editing use star wipe oh my god I mean, it why was... would you use anything else it's, once you've I mean, gone to star was... wipe you can't go back so are you guys I just want to ask do you two still work for the deep state or just? <laughs> oh man, we'd be making so much more money if we worked for the deep state. Yeah, we, we've actually, we actually had our bin Laden burial at seas already and we've just been replaced by clones. So uh, yep. yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not the originals. It's just like Hank and Dean from Venture Brothers. How many right. different, how, which version are we on, Mike? I don't even remember. <laughs> I think about seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Reaching back to ancient Egypt, there's been a single cabal of powerful individuals directing the course of human history. But the common man prefers to believe they don't exist, which aids their success. Global warming, military upheavals in the third world, actors elected to public office. The spread of coffee bars, germs outpacing antibiotics, and boy bands? Come on, who would gain from all this? Who indeed? Indeed. 